Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The VanCast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. We've told you this before, the Canucks at home for most of the month of December, so a great opportunity for you to put the GameTime app to good use. In fact, somebody had reached to us, reached out to us on Twitter the other day and said they had made use of the GameTime app, and so it works like a charm, so take it from our VanCast listeners and get in on the deals as well. The GameTime app is simple, it's quick, it's easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. Vancast for you with Drancer as the Vancouver Canucks honored Alex Burroughs and then channeled everything good about Alex Burroughs and what he represents. A terrific night for the hockey club on the ice, off the ice, and this club got a much-needed victory. It was a good day for the Athletic as well. Uh, we'll get to your uh, oral history of the Slay the Dragon goal because uh, terrific stuff, and I know it was well-received as well. But uh, we thought it would be a fun night, and it was. I was really impressed. I think my biggest takeaway is that I was really impressed by some of the organic action the crowd took collectively to make this night that extra bit sort of memorable, Uh, certainly just from the standpoint of an observer. And I think about, you know, them chanting Dragon Slayer, right? The crowd chanting Dragon Slayer as the ceremonial puck drop took place or toward the end of the game with, with the game mostly in hand and the Senators playing an endgame about as conservatively as I've seen one played in the NHL since before Patrick Waugh sort of changed the way teams approach goalie pulls with the Alex Burroughs chant toward the end of the game. I mean, that's sort of the 
sounds of a engaged fan base and maybe some sounds that wouldn't have been heard in this building over the past three, four years until this season. And, you know, when I sort of think about that, you know, it just reminds me that Alex Burroughs, so widely loathed elsewhere, right? They, they mounted his name on the wall, you know, in the bowl, and he's got just that best shit-eating grin, right? Like, it's a classic Alex Burroughs shit-eating grin. You know that any opponent who actually played him will look up and think, oh, I want to punch that <laughs> ring of honor in the mouth. And, uh, and I think that's perfect. And I think it's a good reminder that, you know, Burroughs was uniquely Vancouver's. And the more loathed he was elsewhere, the more Vancouver fans embraced him. He kind of represented the, you know, outsider, underdog, um, hard done by sort of personality that I think Canucks fans see in themselves and, and relate to. And so from that perspective, it, it felt pretty appropriate. It, it felt perfect. And to have goals from Antoine Roussel, who obviously is Burroughs' friend and his spiritual successor and, you know, an undrafted guy from the queue and, and Zach McEwen, who, who said he related to the story, uh, you know, came right out and, and responded to your very good question quite openly. Uh, you know, it, it felt appropriate and it, it was a pretty cool night all around. It's funny. I mean, you, you mentioned it, and that is such a part of the Alex Burrow story is that people outside the city walls don't get it, or at least outside the provincial border. They don't get it, and they never will, and this was a night to celebrate. It was like, you know, anybody that's from B.C., and certainly anybody from Vancouver, it was a night to sort of circle the wagons. Who cares what the outside world thinks? This was just a night to celebrate all that Alex Burroughs did during the best era ever of Vancouver Canuck hockey. Yeah, let's not... You know, if you go back to that four-year stretch from, like, 2009 to 2012, right? Like, Burroughs, Henrik, and Daniel are, I think, three of five players in the NHL who were plus 100 over that time frame. I mean, they were just ventilating teams five-on-five. Alex Burroughs was a top-ten goal scorer. You know, a guy who started his career in Greenville, South Carolina, right? A top-ten goal scorer over a four-year period. I mean, that's not a one-off. That's not Merrick Malik leading the league in plus-minus. Like, that's sustained excellence over a prolonged period of time in which the Canucks also happen to win, you know, five playoff rounds and two President's Trophies. I mean, they don't get the cup, and, and that's obviously something that everyone will remember that core for. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't take away from what they accomplished and, and how good they were for, you know, so long. And, and Burroughs was a huge part of that. I mean, not just the work that he did with the Twins, but the fact that he was an elite penalty killer and, and an excellent defensive player. And, you know, resonated in this city in a pretty significant way, like a pretty unique way. And, and I thought there were a lot of interesting sort of just small nuggets. Like Burroughs did, did, gave a great speech, I thought, you know, extemporaneous and uh, delivered it well. But I thought it was really interesting that, when he invoked Luongo's name, for example, it was a very nostalgic Lou, right? Like there was no sense of, oh, 3.3 against the cap, you know, no, none of that. Whose voice is that? <laughs> I don't know, some, someone <laughs> complaining about it. <laughs> that's, that's just, uh, just so anyone, anyone knows, when, when you say something negative to me on Twitter, I read it in falsetto. <laughs> um, but so that's what the anti-capper capturers sound like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I don't know why, um, but yeah, no, they're they're sopranos, so it is. <laughs> but you know, there was no 
there was no doubt about it, right? Like, that was a pretty significant reaction. I, I was surprised by the reaction for Mason Raymond. I mean, a guy who, anytime I said, you know, credible middle six forward on Twitter, I got shouted at, you know, uh, called called soft. Like, people were saying I'm soft for, for, for defending Mason Raymond as a credible top six so, or credible top six forward or a credible middle six forward prior to his back injury anyway. Um, you know, I remember those days pretty well, so I was surprised by that reaction too. And um, But, you know, just sort of an interesting, nostalgic evening, and obviously the Canucks showed well on the ice. Uh, maybe some of the defensive issues that have kind of plagued them over the past couple of weeks. Like, I don't think that's a whole November trend, but certainly the last two and a half weeks, I think showed showed a little bit in that second period when they leaned pretty heavily on Thatcher Demko. But for the most part, you know, a pretty solid performance, decisive when it mattered uh, from the Canucks. And, you know, a, a very good performance, I thought, from the Canucks faithful in attendance at Rogers Arena. Clearly there was appetite for an evening like this. And, you know, I thought the fans did a pretty excellent job all around. Yeah, and it's all a build to February, obviously, when the Twins see their jerseys go up to the rafters, and that's going to be incredible, and it was good to see Daniel and Henrik around, and I, I saw some noise on Twitter. I won't read it in any particular voice <laughs> other than my own, but, you know, people are like, where were Daniel and Henrik at center ice? Where is Trevor Lind? Like, I think anytime there's a night, those questions are going to be asked. Uh, look, the big show comes in February. It's the week. It's the Sedine week, and obviously uh, the stars will be out, but this was a night for Alex Burroughs, even though some of the players that we talked about were in attendance, they weren't on the ice with Burroughs. That was for him and his family, and they got their moment, and, and he has his spot now uh, that can't be taken away in the ring of honor. Yeah, you mentioned Demko. I thought it was an important night for him. Look, they went with Markstrom back-to-back, unconventional as that is, but I thought it was also fairly telling about what the team and Travis Green you know, thinks of Jacob Markstrom. He called him his starter. Uh, and maybe that's me reading into it, but look, that's what I do. But Demko hadn't been that great the last couple of games, the Pittsburgh game, Colorado, the home game. And so even though these were the Senators and they didn't have much going, as you said, I mean, they carried the play in the second period and there were saves to be made and he made saves. So I, you know, who knows if he gets the start against Buffalo, given that Jacob Markstrom is back home again, it would certainly make sense. But if Thatcher Demko needed to, you know, build the trust up again of the coaching staff. I, I think he did that. I, that's why I thought it was an important game for him. Surely we won't see Markstrom start before next week. And, you know, that just seems appropriate based on the grueling nature of transatlantic travel. And, you know, so, uh, I mean, definitely a confidence builder for Demko. Look, he's played well for the most part. I think he's had his moments obviously that Pittsburgh game is one you worry about a little bit potentially uh, but he bounced back from that and I thought he was certainly Vancouver's best player over the latter 40 minutes uh, you know if uh, if if their best player was sort of someone on that third line for the first 40 certainly it was someone from the bottom six because at least up five on five their top six this was not their night necessarily uh, despite some sort of moments where you know the, the team played pretty well but you know all told I thought the start was important for Demko, and I thought the overall play of the team, and especially in that first 12 minutes when they really seized the game. I mean, by the time Ottawa recovered, and, and they kind of recovered before Vancouver got that fourth, but by the time they recovered, the game was essentially in the book. And, you know, this is a Senators team that I think probably, 
you know, they, they had a long time in Vancouver, right? They were in Vancouver all weekend. They were breaking up crime. Like, they were, they were honestly, like, forming special victims units in the, in the, with the Vancouver police officers. And they were feeding the homeless. Yeah, and truly unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> you know, excellent citizens, clearly. but uh, Bad hockey team. <laughs> excellent citizens. But you know what? They've been one of those teams that sort of outperforms their talent level they work hard right and so you know it's not and i don't want to do the no easy games because obviously the senators at home are a team you've got to beat if you have the ambitions that this canucks team has and have played the way you did in november but uh you know the overall i still think you can take something from the way they played in that first 10 minutes and it was decisive i mean you know there's still some you you don't want to see a team like the Canucks give up 40 shots against the Senators, especially because the trend line defensively has not been in their favor over the past three weeks. But, you know, nonetheless, this was a decisive performance by the Canucks on a memorable evening for the franchise. Yeah, and I think Travis Green sort of in a roundabout way postgame said, like, it's hard to keep the intensity level up at 4 nothing. Like, you do a lot of good things to get a 4 nothing lead. It's kind of human nature to think, oh, it's going to be one of those nights, pad the stats, you know, get away from the things that you had done to be successful. But I like the fact that, and we saw a lot early in the season, too, that, you know, this team had shown a willingness to go to the front of that. I mean, three of the four goals are deflections. Uh, I thought Adam Gaudet, uh, and I was glad to hear the coach, I mean, he's been asked a lot about Gaudet over sort of, you know, the first 20-whatever games. Gaudet hasn't played them all, but... You know, a couple of assists, nice play on the Roussel goal. And all of a sudden, Adam Gaudet's got 13 points in 19 games. And I know face-offs remain a bit of an issue, but he held his own in the face-off circle uh, on Tuesday night against the Senators. So that's a step in the right direction. Brandon Sutter getting close to getting back. This conversation has sort of gone on, but in your mind, like who should be the third-line center for the Vancouver Canucks moving forward? Yeah, I mean, if Sutter comes back, say Sutter's back Saturday, you know, I wouldn't be shocked to see him given a look on the wing to begin with, Uh, you know, assuming, though, that Beagle comes back, right? If Sutter came back and Beagle's not back, then obviously he'll play fourth-line center. Uh, Once Beagle and Sutter are healthy, I mean, you know, the Canucks went to Sutter on the wing earlier in the season – I personally thought it was a better look than having Gaudet on the wing in the top six, uh, you know, and I, I do think Gaudet's played well enough at five on five to maybe warrant sort of an extended look at that spot. But at the same time, like clearly Green has massaged Gaudet's matchups five on five pretty significantly. He's done it for sure on the road. He's done it a bit at home. And so it's not as simple as saying, you know, Gaudet's played really well. I mean, he has, but he's also been you know, not playing soft minutes because there's no soft minutes when your team's down two centermen and, you know, the fourth line's playing six minutes a night. Like, they're, they're all credible minutes. But, you know, he's been playing sort of a prescribed role. And, you know, putting Sutter on that wing, I suspect, would at least provide a level of comfort that might allow the Canucks to use that third line a little more and distribute ice time a little bit more evenly, which I, I thought was interesting about how they faced the Senators. They took that early lead. And while their play lulled over the latter 40, I, I also think it lulled because they, you know, didn't play the PD line a ton. And Troy Stetcher led all Canucks defensemen in even strength ice time. And we definitely haven't seen that all season. 
And, you know, the fourth line played nine plus, right? Every fourth liner was over 10 except McEwen overall. Uh, so, you know, I think they took full advantage of that early lead and they were willing to take some lumps, I think, in order to get some rest, uh, you know, play this kind of smart, even with as many days off as they have now before that Buffalo Sabres game at the tail end of a grueling road trip and a rough back-to-back set, you know, punctuated by that rough back-to-back set against the Oilers uh, on their return to Vancouver or their return to Western Canada anyway. Uh, you know, I think it's I think it's pretty interesting that they decided to take that balanced approach, and I think it's telling about where the team thinks their fatigue levels are, something Travis admitted explicitly. Yeah, and I, I think that was a sound strategy. You build a four-goal cushion, sure. I mean, the Senators were able to, you know, for a brief time make it interesting, but I think you have to have nights like that. It's a long season, and look, we don't play the games, but out on the road, like I know by the end of that, road trip and you came home after Pittsburgh I toughed it out for three nights in Edmonton but like I was bagged like the last place I wanted to be was back at the rink on Sunday night and so you know I can understand the fatigue issues and to hear Travis kind of lay it out that you know even with a day off Monday Tuesday morning was in and out he said he didn't want guys spending a lot of time at the rink they didn't have meetings to bog guys down like, that's sound strategy and I'm always fascinated sort of by the you know psychology behind it all and I, I, I'm always appreciative when a coach will kind of reveal what he's done and it sounds like you know they're going to take full advantage of the fact that they don't play until Saturday now there's probably another full team day off in there uh, because they have. They've been on the road. I mean, 17 of the first 27 were on the road. We've talked about that again as guys that have been out there. Like, it's felt like that. Like, it it has felt like they have lived out of a suitcase. I tweeted it on the weekend. I did my own math of, you know, how many hotel nights and flights. And, like, it even caught – it surprised me when I saw the, the sheer volume of numbers. And that's why December is such a, a fascinating month and – an important one for the Vancouver Canucks. And so the loss to the Oilers on Sunday, that first game back after a long road trip, that one stung because they had a chance to, you know, pick up where they left off on Saturday with a lot of good and a lot of balanced scoring. And then they, you know, look, the Oilers' best players take over. That happens. It's happened a lot this year. But this is a team that's now here in December at home an awful lot. And and you you mentioned it. Like, it didn't matter what it looked like. They just needed a win against the Senators. Uh, and they need a win against Buffalo, right? And, you know, they need two of the four points available against Carolina and Toronto, two teams that I think are imposing regardless of what Toronto sort of laid, and it was an egg, um, you know, on, on Tuesday evening anyway. So, you know, I mean, there's no question if this Canucks team is going to keep up, right, uh, their, their schedule is thinning out in terms of density, a lot of other teams are going to be playing more games. They are probably going to be on the outside looking in to a playoff spot by the time they face Buffalo on Saturday. Um, even if they win that game, likely again going into the Toronto game just based on how other teams are playing. So these games are crucial just to keep pace um, You know, in a Pacific division that's looking wide open. I mean, they have to capitalize on this December stretch. And, and that's why, you know, this is such an essential sort of set of decisions in terms of how to use the next few days uh, for the Canucks, right? Because it's really about getting some rest and, and adjusting to being home and then getting prepared to make the most of it. Because if this team can't take advantage over the next three, four weeks, you know, through Christmas, uh, prior to leaving to Florida in early January, 
you know, then then they're going to be facing a real tough uphill climb uh, through the, you know, new year, the first couple months of the new year. This is the part of the VanCast where we tell you about Roman. What did you say before uh, we started rolling that uh, if you couldn't get up for an Alex Burroughs night at the rink, then there's something wrong with you? Uh, no one played harder. Look, talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we brush it off, blame ourselves, say stuff like I lost my mojo, or we avoid it altogether with excuses like I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real doctor who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, it's safe, and it's totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. Just go to roman.com slash Canucks to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's getroman.com slash Canucks for a free visit to get started. Getroman.com slash Canucks. All right, it was a night dedicated to Alex Burroughs. It was all about Alex Burroughs. And you spent the last couple of months uh, putting together what really was uh, a terrific piece to read, and, and it was fun for me because I have seen the work that's gone in behind the scenes, and, you know, it was a massive undertaking. It was ambitious right from the start, but if anybody was going to pull it off, uh, it was Drancer, and look, I mean, I, I think it was received the way that you hoped it would be, uh, and so I commend you first and foremost, but I, I want to get into a little bit about, you know, the the oral history of the oral history of the Slay the Dragon goal. You've written about it, now we're going to talk about it. Uh, what was it, 16 of the participants, right? I mean, that's a, that's a long list. Yeah, it was 16 interviews, and I'd say the average length was probably 20 minutes, right? Like, these were not short sort of conversations. I mean, you were in New Jersey, right? And And just so that our listeners are aware, like, the St. Louis game happens, right? I'm on armies that night. I get to my hotel room at about 2 a.m. I fly to Newark at 6 a.m. I land in Newark for 10 a.m. and I have to kill three hours, right? Like, I, I literally am just, you know, you've got that stomach ache when you're tired. And I walked around Newark trying to find a diner and I couldn't. And I ended up eating Subway and they didn't have Wi-Fi and I used all my data. Anyway. Yeah, but the VanCast likes Subway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I love the 12 foot, uh, the, sorry, the foot long Subways. <laughs> damn, damn, you were hungry. A 12 foot Subway. <laughs> uh, you know, everything's bigger after a Roman read. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we, anyway, you know, but I ended up talking to Corey Schneider and the good thing about this is enough time has passed and these guys all remember it fondly and once you get into it they tended to be pretty happy to talk about it so you know Schneider could have been a five-minute conversation ends up being a 12-minute conversation and you know one of the fun things that he said that didn't make the piece was uh, you know I was joking with him I was like what was the lead-up like because you know the thing about Canucks fans is they kind of don't like their team right and he said yeah you know it actually reminds me a lot of the Red Sox pre-2005 and, and Schneider's a big Red Sox fan I know Canucks fans might not like the Boston reference but you know I thought that was a pretty sort of telling quote from a guy who has a pretty good sense of some of the pressures involved but you know Schneider was great you know I we had a game day in Anaheim right after Halloween and the Blackhawks were practicing in El Segundo which is a 40-minute drive with no traffic uh, I ended up spending about two hours in a car on a game day to and from uh, just in order to get and all I got 
was Patrick Kane, right? I got five or six minutes with Patrick Kane out of two hours of driving, which, you know, feels fruitless at the time, but then you have Patrick Kane in your oral history and that's worth doing. You know, Jonathan Taves had just finished a seven minute game day scrum and I just sort of was like, okay, I need Taves. So I took him aside, right? I just introduced myself. I've never met him before, shook his hand, dropped Dale's name, dropped Joel Quenville's name, like, oh, I worked with them. Like, you know, I'm different. And, uh, and, then, and then just kind of got him going. And, and Taves was kind of sneakily one of the all-stars of that piece. I mean, the quote about him throwing the beer out and the quote about hoping that people, you know, look at the Blackhawks-Canucks sort of rivalry the way they look at Detroit and Colorado, even if it didn't make the piece. I mean, that's good stuff. And, and his memory of that shorthanded goal and, you know, how underappreciated it was. And then, you know, I got Patrick Sharp through NBC. I got... Ryan Kessler through Alex Burroughs. I got Burroughs through Laval Rocket PR. I mean, it's all just about triangulating and sticking on it. Like, there's no magic. It's just the work. Um, Chris Campoli, like, honestly, until I got Campoli on the record, I didn't even th go ahead with the project because without his voice in it, it doesn't even work. And I, I just have so much admiration, not only because he's a smart guy who gave me awesome quotes, but because he didn't have to do this by any means. And his quotes make it so evident talking to him made it so evident that this is a play and, and a sequence of events that he's turned over in his head, you know, the way you'd expect an athlete to when they, you know, have a sort of error like that that becomes higher profile and takes on a life of its own. And so I thought it was awesome. I thought it showed incredible self-awareness and, and just a level of, you know, I don't, courage is probably too far, but just a level of you know, being just a level of maturity and being willing to face up to that for, you know, the benefit of history. And so I, I really can't thank him enough. I, I was so appreciative of that. And I was so appreciative of that, that one of the best stories I got on the record, I, I couldn't put it in just because I felt it would have been disrespectful to a guy who I thought had gone above and beyond to make the piece work. But Kevin BX I, I t tells me, <laughs> while, while I'm talking to BX, and BX is obviously the standout. I mean, he gave me three or four of the best quotes in the oral history, and that is zero surprise to anyone who's ever talked to Kevin BX. But he says to me, you know, I actually saw Chris Campoli that summer. I go to a PA meeting in Toronto, and Chris Campoli's there. And he says to me, oh, you know, sorry about the finals, but what a great run you guys went on. And I said, hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, where did you play this year? And Campoli says, what do you mean? I was in Chicago. I gave the puck away for the game winner. And BX is like, oh, yeah. Like, I, cool. <laughs> you know, and, and, and he sort of finishes the quote off with, I don't care who gave it away. I was just glad we won. And so, you know, I think there's, I couldn't put that in. It just didn't seem right, you know. And one thing I did want to sort of emphasize is, like, Bexa looks at the sharp shot a lot of people say, oh, he interfered with the pass and, and on and on. But Bieksa looks at it and he says, I played it too aggressively. You know, Burroughs looks at the missed penalty shot. He looks at the Tave shorty and the neutral zone turnover that led to it as his fault. He, you know, remembers that two minutes in the box during OT that led to that sort of sharp chance as some of the worst moments of his career. And, you know, the line between Burroughs being Campoli and Campoli being Burroughs, right, is so thin in professional hockey, especially once you get into game seven overtime. And, and I think that's what's fun about sports. And, th and that was something I was trying to capture, even as I was, you know, just trying to help Canucks fans sort of relive this 
you know, unparalleled moment uh, in franchise history. Well, again, I commend you. And, and it was fun because I lived it as uh, we were out on the road to watch <laughs> you. No, but like, you know, your successes of getting the people you got and like AV in Philadelphia and all those types of things. So, like, you know, I had a sense of, you know, where it was going, what it ultimately was going to look like but until you read it you're not sure so uh look it was fun to read it brought back a ton of memories i saw that there were all sorts of comments uh, underneath the article at the athletic and you know again that's why the athletic is what it is to give people an opportunity to to do that kind of i mean look the burrow story has been told a thousand times it's a great one i've got nothing but time for the alex burrow story but uh, you took it in a different direction, and, and so good on you. It was fun to read, and and as you said, like you could have, you could have done it. You could have still done a good job, but to get Campoli, to get Kessler, there, like there was no guarantee that Ryan Kessler was going to play for you, and you know, so just that sort of was value added for the reader, and I think took it all to another level. So uh, you know, it was just a, it was a great sort of prelude to start the day, being able to read that and relive so many of the moments that were shown, you know, on the Jumbotron and the highlights and those types of things. So, uh, again, good on you. Now get to work. (laughs) 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 Uh, Enough of the oral history. Come on. Tomorrow's a new day. Um, What do we make of the Canucks roster as they move here to the weekend? We've been saying this for a while, but now that Roussel is back, you know, that's sort of the first domino. Uh, There are, like, these tough decisions that we've been talking about for a while are about to have to be made. Yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting, and I think it's going to be very fluid from a Canucks point of view as they go into this weekend and into next week. You know, Travis on Tuesday prior to the game had said, you know, we could get one or both of Sutter and Beagle back, and, and you know Travis is hoping he gets both, but, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see where that goes. Michael Furland was a full participant in morning skate. And I don't believe that that counts as a full contact practice, which would be sort of step five of six on that uh, scat five sort of return to play protocol. But, you know, would suggest to me anyway that if he's a full participant in a theoretical Canucks practice on Thursday, I mean, he could be cleared by Friday. He could play if the timeline works without a recurrence of symptoms by Saturday. You know, maybe Tuesday's more realistic. Currently, Furlan's on LTIR and Brandon Sutter's on LTIR. And just in terms of sequencing, things are going to get dicey, especially because Alex Edler's in that kind of mushy middle where you can't really put him on LTI if he's going to be, you know, only out two weeks or reevaluated after two weeks, which was the update that Travis gave on Tuesday night post game. Um, you know, Grayovac probably can. Uh, Tyler Mott's eligible too. So there's a few things, but I think they're going to come down to needing to make some pretty difficult decisions here by this weekend, potentially, and by Tuesday at the latest, depending on how many of these players they, you know, depending on the status of Markstrom. And I think we expect him back Saturday probably to back up. Uh, you know, Furland, I'd say. I expect him back within a week of today at this point. Uh, you know, I wouldn't sort of pencil him in for Saturday, but certainly possible. And, you know, potentially one of Sutter and Beagle. I mean, Goldobin, Zach McEwen, Louis Erickson potentially, uh, a trade. You know, we, we do see teams, it's roughly this time of year, for example, when 
the Canucks, actually it's exactly a year today when the Canucks traded for Josh Levo, a deal that the Toronto Maple Leafs made in order to free up a roster spot for William Nylander, right? That was a sort of a behind the scenes anyway, one of the reasons that that deal got made when it did. So, you know, we are sort of looking at a Canucks team that despite managing things pretty well and making some smart decisions in terms of, you know, not going into LTI in off season and sort of thinking they can just undo their moves has sort of seen their best laid plans torn asunder by a variety of, you know, injuries now to a big money blue liner, but also just to the bottom six throughout the season. And, you know, they're facing some tough choices as they sort of figure out how to put those puzzle pieces back together here. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see, a player we maybe didn't expect on on waivers. Uh, well, I, I don't know. Did we not expect Louis on waivers? I mean, <laughs> at some point, I think we all figured it would happen. It, it, that would be news anyway, right? So, you know, I, I, whether that comes this week or whether there's, you know, a sort of increase in the minutes that Jim Benning's using <laughs> on his cell phone plan over the next few days, you know, it does look to me anyway like uh, something is going to need to give not not for the Canucks to get everyone on they'll get everyone on but just in terms of figuring out the sequencing um, it's going to be a little bit touch and go and and you know whenever you get to that situation sort of covering a team more than anything I think we're just going to be on a little bit sort of elevated alert for something of interest that helps the Canucks sort of piece that all together here in the next few days. Well, it was a great night for Alex Burrows. It was a good night for the Vancouver Canucks. And I know you weren't around the team last year, but maybe the best news of all is that Antoine Roussel is back for game day and post-game interviews. I mean, he really is an engaging personality. It's been lacking in that locker room. He's such a go-to guy for those of us in this business, so maybe I'm being a little selfish here. But, you know, you got to feel good for a guy after eight and a half months out, coming off major surgery, to get his season started the way he did and uh, it was funny I mean he said in the morning that uh, if he scored in his first game he was going to keep the mustache and uh, sure enough he scores a minute and 50 seconds in his season debut and we'll see if the mustache survives here the good luck stash as it were uh, just before we wrap things up I want to tell you about uh, four stacked lines Chris Meany and Eric Young cover all things fantasy hockey twice each week from draft season right through game 82 in April. New episodes arrive on Tuesdays and Fridays with special guests from The Athletic to discuss role changes, projections, prospects, strategy, waiver wire pickups, buy low and sell high candidates, and a whole lot more. And get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash four stacked lines. We'll have another VanCast later in the week here for VIPs. Again, uh, we thank you for all the support, uh, hearing from lots of you, how much you're enjoying it. So we'll continue to uh, pump out the VanCast twice a week for you. The one is uh, free. The other one, the second one in the week, is behind the payroll, paywall. But uh, that's more reason uh, for you to subscribe. If you don't already, what are you waiting for? You're missing out on things like the oral history of the Slay the Dragon Bowl. But, uh, Drancer, uh, fun night of hockey as uh, we wrap things up. The Vancouver Canucks defeating the Ottawa Senators, and they get ready for Buffalo on the weekend. It'll be interesting that Buffalo team obviously had an excellent start and, you know, some chatter should probably be happening about Rasmus Dahlin, who has not perhaps reprised his rookie form, and Quinn Hughes, who remains unbelievable most of the time. Uh, you know, I went into the season sort of joking about how uh, Quinn Hughes has a chance to be the second best player from that draft class, and that's really first since no one can touch Dahlin. 
but if you look at what they've both done this season, uh, you know, I think that gap might be narrower than I ever would have expected uh, prior to the season beginning anyway, and, and that's sort of going to be an interesting thing to kind of track on Saturday, regardless, certainly two of the most talented young defenders in the game, uh, you know, playing it, playing a matinee, a matinee that I assume is designed for a Swedish audience, right? Uh, Pedersen versus Dahlin, uh, you know, at Rogers Arena on Saturday, it'll be an interesting game, and uh, you know, that's sort of the main plot line that I'm side-eyeing a few days in advance. All right, that's going to do it for this VanCast. Again, thanks so much for listening. For Drancer, it's J-Pat. It is the VanCast here on The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.